0: Well, in his superb commentary on the Psalms, Derek Kidner writes the following introduction for the psalm that we're going to be studying this morning. Depth and strength underlie the simplicity of this psalm. Its peace is not escape, its contentment is not complacency. There is a readiness to face deep darkness and imminent attack, and the climax reveals a love which homes towards no material goal, but towards the Lord himself. Any guess what Psalm Dr. Kidner is describing? Well, if you looked at your bulletin or your order of service, you know, Um, but doesn't that description, that eloquent description of this particular Psalm build an appetite to want to understand it better, to discover and study this Psalm, a peace that is not escape, a contentment. That is not complacency, a readiness in life to face deep darkness, even imminent attack. I would guess that actually each of you is already familiar with this psalm. Uh, There's likely no one in this room who does not have some serious familiarity with this psalm. And that's what informs just a little bit of concern in my soul as I bring to you teaching on Psalm 23, because it's possible to be familiar with this psalm. And maybe too familiar and yet fail to understand, as Dr. Kidner points out, the depth and the strength that underlie the simplicity of this psalm. For the modern reader, the popularity and the simplicity of the psalm can sometimes obscure the depth and the strength that it imparts. But it's my hope, it's my prayer this morning that as we study this psalm, it's going to impart fresh strength, fresh hope, fresh encouragement from God's word strength. That one needs when you're experiencing weariness, which is something familiar to us all. Weariness in the Christian life. Weariness in particular in the darkness of suffering. And though we're all familiar with this psalm, we'll never exhaust the depth of it. And we're going to be freshly reminded of that this morning. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. And please look as I read. What occasioned the writing of what one theologian calls the most beloved, most sung, most prayed, and most studied psalm in all the Psalter? Well, as with many psalms, the specifics that informed the writing of the psalm are not known in full to us. They are intentionally withheld to some degree from us. But what is clear as we look at this psalm is that David has been reflecting. He's been reflecting on his life. He's been looking back on the experiences and it's been quite the journey from shepherd boy to Israel's king. Uh, David has enjoyed, if you read through the Old Testament, seasons of deep refreshment, joyful communion with God. But he's also walked through plenty of trials, significant trials, some unanticipated paths, severe tests, dangers, even betrayal. He's endured even false accusations, painful attack from those closest to him what's surprising as we read psalm 23 knowing that david's reflecting is that he has emerged from these events of life not embittered or jaded by life's difficulties as the king reflects it's clear that while he's been affected no doubt by the trials of his life he's gained a joy that's beyond his circumstances a joy that's out of the grasp of a painful past He holds a joy that comes from a well-settled conviction about who God is and how God relates to him. See, Psalm 23, it wonderfully captures the believer's story, every believer's story, which is really a story of our Lord's utter dependability and faithfulness and lavish care. The theme of this psalm, this song, if you were, is one of the Lord's Faithfulness. It's very simply the Lord Yahweh has been faithful to David. In every season, in every changing circumstance, this is the constant. Yahweh has been faithful. So Psalm 23, it's here to teach us something this morning. It's here to teach us to confess with David in his testimony that the unwavering faithfulness of the Lord, it calls for my absolute trust in him. That's really if you were to boil down this psalm into one statement of trust, it's this that the unwavering faithfulness of the Lord, it calls for, it beckons, it demands my absolute trust in him. So to reflect deeply on the Lord's faithfulness this morning, we are going to study the two the two pictures that emerge from this psalm about the Lord. See, David wants to impress certain truths about the Lord on us, and so he captures two powerful metaphors that mark this psalm. The metaphor of shepherd and the metaphor, maybe a little more subtly, of host. So we're going to allow the psalmist to lead us through kind of an extended meditation on the Lord as shepherd and the Lord as host. And as we do, I want to note along the way a series of declarations that this psalm enables us to make about the Lord and how he relates to us at the end of it all this psalm is meant to produce a personal trust a confidence that says no matter what comes my way i'm not going to throw away my confidence in the faithfulness of my god and so let's take a look at the first metaphor that's found at the outset of psalm 23 and verse 1 the lord is my shepherd now as you all know the, the idea of lord as shepherd is not a new image for David. David grew up knowing the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These were his forefathers in the faith. They were also shepherds and nomads by trade. They wandered around. They did a lot of wandering by God's design, and they they learned to look to God as their shepherd. In fact, Jacob spent many days and nights shepherding flocks, and on one distinct night, he wrestled with an angel of God. And as a result, he walked out the rest of his shepherding days with a limp. But listen to some of his last words, the last words of Jacob. He said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. He had learned to say, the Lord is my shepherd. David had learned these words. Later in Exodus, we encounter Yahweh leading his people out of Exodus, out of captivity to the Egyptians through the Red Sea, providing manna for them. God shepherded his people. He personally shepherded Israel into the promised land. But in this psalm, what you might note is that we hone in on the individual. We're meant to be struck by the personal Powerful dynamic of our psalm. Israel's shepherd actually intends to shepherd us personally. There is a very real sense as we study the scriptures that God shepherds us as a people, right? But this psalm is supposed to impress upon us the personal care of our Lord, how personally he shepherds us. David starts with a declaration The Lord is my shepherd. So it's powerful and appropriate for us to say the Lord is our shepherd, right? He shepherds us as his people. But we should also know that he is here to shepherd me. He's here to shepherd you. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. And as a result of the personal ministry that we experience from Yahweh, the Almighty God, we experience a distinct lack of want. We find true contentment. True joy, true provision. So in these next three verses, David provides us with three declarations that sum up his personal experience of the shepherd's faithfulness. And the first declaration that I want to draw your attention to is this. My shepherd is faithful to restore me. That's the first declaration that David makes about his shepherd. My shepherd is faithful to restore me. Look again at verse two. He makes me lie down in green pastures He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So this opening scene is one that is supposed to bring us comfort. David talks about a scene of green pastures and still waters. It captures the ideal spot for a sheep to rest. An ideal spot for a person to rest. But he's in particular drawing our attention to sheep that have gone through Difficult circumstances, that no thirst, that no hunger. And here the shepherd has kindly led them into a place of rest where they can experience the return of some much-needed strength, vitality, life. The grass here, it's not spotty, it's lavish. So these sheep are sprawled out, they're enjoying their day, they've been, they're being cared for by the shepherd. Why this stress on the experience of restoration. That's what I think we should ask of the text. Why this stress on the experience of being restored? Well, David knew that sheep need rest, and he used that as a metaphor for the reality that God's people need restoration of soul. God's people need restoration from God because we live in a very fallen world. Just think about the list of needs that Larry prayed for a few minutes ago. Needs surround us. Troubles surround us. We look at the events of our day, and world news, national news. We look at our relationships. We look at those we care for. We consider our own souls, and we see we need rest. We need restoration. And that's been the case ever since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve went their own way They rebelled against God, and the world fell. We became a fallen world. Adam and Eve turned away. They sinned against God by believing they had a better way. In the rebellion, the reality of sin came into our world, and through the rebellion in ours, the effects of sin continue to mark our world to this day. And we live in a world that knows separation from God. A humanity that since that day has been on a course against God and away from God. And instead of orienting ourselves to God, we tend to orient ourselves inwardly to ourself, to our own way. Our world has fallen into a condition where sin and death touch everything around us. We need salvation. We need redemption. We need restoration. And so the green pastures and still waters in this scene... They represent a shepherd who has rescued his sheep from going their own way. And to say that the Lord is my shepherd, these are not sentimental statements. These are not just passing phrases of superficial comfort. They are words of salvation. Yahweh and no one else has rescued me. Yahweh has brought me into right relationship with him. Yahweh has rescued me. You think of the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 53. He likely had this psalm on his mind when he penned these words. We all like sheep have gone astray. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. I remember when I was 14, the Lord used those words from Isaiah about a sheep wandering off. About how that's true for everyone to grip my soul with my need for the Savior to show me that I was not in right relationship with God and that I needed to stop going my own way and turn to the Lord as my shepherd and savior. I needed the restoring of soul known as salvation, forgiveness of sins before a holy God, reconciliation to a God I have been alienated from because of my sin and restoration through his mercy. So this picture of restoring, it starts when a person turns from going his own way and turns to the Lord for salvation. But it's also a picture of the saint's daily life, a believer's daily life. To live in this following world is to seek to follow our shepherd in weariness and trouble and hardship. And that's not because our shepherd is not good, but it's because this world is so very fallen. And with its passions and desires, it's so off course. It takes work. It takes the fight of faith that the Bible talks about to go his way and not our own. And left to ourselves, we will at times run off course. And David, even as a follower of the Lord, knew what it was like to wander far from his shepherd. You may remember the time where he committed adultery and killed Uriah in order to have Bathsheba as his wife. After a lengthy season of sinning grievously against the Lord and others, David was brought into restoration through the faithful words of Nathan. And so David, repentant and ashamed for his sin and longing for right relationship to be restored to him with God, he prayed these words in Psalm 51. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Do you hear his longing to be right with God? He goes on to pray, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Create in me a clean heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Shepherd and restore the Lord did. If you read about David's life, you read about the Lord's forgiveness. You read about how the Lord did renew a right spirit within David. The Lord restored his soul. And restoration is something that the believers need every day of their lives. We are to behold the restoring grace of our shepherd. We are to seek it. It's available daily to us. But restoration, it's not limited just to our need for forgiveness. Restoration is a bigger picture than that. It's a fuller picture of a vivid picture of a soul set right with God. Resting in the mercies of God. Enjoying the privileges and benefits of being the Lord's child. Being aware of the love of God. Rest of soul is the daily need of every believer. Do you need restoration of soul today? I'd venture to say that to some degree, we all need restoration of soul today. None of us escapes a need for daily restoration and refreshing and replenishing in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of our fight with sin. Here's some good news from this psalm. This passage is not simply counseling us towards an experience of restoration. It's counseling us to the one who gives restoration, the Lord who is our shepherd. He's the one who restores our soul. He is able to restore. He cares enough about you to restore. And he knows your need intimately for a restored soul. How does he restore? Well, in large measure, he restores through the life-giving and life-reviving message in this book that we call the Bible. You know, to read through David's Psalms is to read a man who, is, who loved the Word. Read through Psalm 119, you'll be struck with how David prayed about the joy of just having the Word of God in his life. And how it revived him. So, you need reviving? Go to the shepherd and hear his voice in the Word, the Bible. Take in its reviving f- effects. When the Word is opened, we get to know the main character, our shepherd, personally. And opportunity comes for rest and refreshment from our shepherd. He restores he revives. Ultimately, this picture of the shepherd restoring anticipates, doesn't it? Anticipates the one who would soon come to be the ultimate shepherd of Israel. The one who would bear our guilt as the sacrificial lamb. The one we call Jesus. The one who would bear upon himself our sins, our curse. And through his sinless life and sacrificial death and resurrection from the dead would make it possible for sinners like us to be in right relationship with God. This psalm anticipates the ultimate shepherd and savior, Jesus Christ. And through him, we have our souls restored daily. He's the one who said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You need rest? We come to Jesus. And as we come and we get more and more experienced at receiving the care and the comfort of the Lord, you know what happens? That begins to affect and to spill over into our relationships. And we become conduits of the Lord's care and restoring mercies to one another around us. You see, the church is to be a family eager to restore one another. To point one another to Jesus. As Galatians six one says, we Restore in a spirit of gentleness. That's what we do as God's people. We emulate the shepherd who restores us and we restore one another. So we should pray that our very gatherings and our friendships within this room are a means of God's restoring grace and revitalizing of one another. Let's pray that our church would be an easy place for the weary and the wayward to come for restoration. Your shepherd My shepherd, he restores. And so we see now from the green pastors of restoration that the Lord leads his revitalized sheep onto new terrain. Look with me at verse 3. After telling us that he restores our soul, David writes, He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And so with this verse, we encounter David's second declaration. My shepherd is faithful to lead me. My shepherd is faithful to lead me. God rescues wayward sheep that he might restore them. And he restores that he might lead. But how does our shepherd lead us? What does this mean? That he leads us in paths of righteousness. Well, these paths of righteousness are actually a testimony to his character. The Lord leads us in ways that are consistent with his covenant love and faithfulness. The Lord leads us in ways that are consistent with His righteous dealings. And as He does, as He leads us in a way that is consistent with His character, He makes us more like Him. He transforms us so that we become increasingly like our righteous shepherd. So the righteous shepherd personally and providentially leads us down specific paths through seasons that test and try but ultimately transform us so that we are more like our shepherd. Those he rescues, he restores. Those he restores, he leads. And he makes us more righteous so that we draw more attention to our righteous shepherd and to his grace. And he leads us like this all for, the Bible says, for his name's sake. Now, I think that for numerous years I read that phrase for his namesake and I thought of that as kind of a motivational sense he leads me with a, a motivation that I want to live for his name's sake. and I think that's implied here for sure um, but what is more fundamentally being revealed in that phrase for his namesake is that he leads us in a way that is consistent with his name the name Yahweh the one who is faithful the one who is true The one who is righteous. And so, as God leads us, He leads us for His name's sake. He leads us in a way that's going to draw attention to His character again and again and again. So, think about the paths of your life that the Lord has led you down. Has He not, along the way, revealed Himself faithful, true, righteous? That's what it means when it says He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. See, David's making much of God. David's making much of his personal Savior. So as you study your current circumstances, look up to your shepherd. Don't be preoccupied with your circumstances as an end. But as you look at your current circumstances, look up to the one who is shepherding you through your current circumstances and by faith, humbly but confidently say, if this is your providence in my life, Lord, if this is the way you want to lead me, your path for me, I know that I can trust you because you lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. My shepherd is faithful to lead me. And he's faithful to lead us even when that path is shrouded with darkness. And this brings us to David's third declaration. My shepherd is faithful to protect me. My shepherd is faithful To protect me. Let's read verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Here the threatening presence of darkness. Even the deepest darkness of death. Is settling in. And has surrounded the heart of this sheep. So to descend into the valley of darkness is to enter into the sheep's greatest nightmare. And when this darkness settles in, there's a sense of vulnerability that's understandable. It's real. It's profoundly felt by the sheep. The way out, it's not evident. And for the believer, we walk through these seasons and we have entered into the valley of the deepest darkness. It's disorienting. How long you'll be there? You don't know. What you will encounter, so often you cannot anticipate. Sinclair Ferguson, the the man that Larry referenced a few minutes ago, he warns us that here, more than anywhere, we can be tempted to say, the promises of God don't seem to be working. The providences that surround us seem to run counter to the promises that he has given us. Did you catch that? The providences of life seem to run counter to the promises that God has given me. What are we to do when it seems as if the providences of life, the difficulties of life, the darkness of where we live seems to run counter to the promises of God? Comfort comes when we remember the psalmist declaration that the Lord will lead him in utter faithfulness. We have not left his paths of righteousness when we go into the valley. David was preparing us in verses 1 through 3. God was preparing us because in faithfulness, we will be shepherded into valleys. In faithfulness, we will be taken into and through suffering. Dark shadows will become seasons in our lives. Evil can feel like a companion. Death accusation, a profound sense of being alone. Satan himself can at times feel like the only one who is near to us. But David, as he reflects back on his life, he has clearly learned that he was not alone, nor was he subject merely to an evil companion. And he wants to communicate what he's learned in the most personal of language. Did you notice that? He uses language of he, he, in verses one through three. But now what does that word give way to? It gives way to you. In the valley, who is with them? You, Lord, are with me. You are with me. His testimony to others about the Lord now gives way to a personal declaration of faith to the Lord. So he's now talking to the Lord. You were there, God. You were there in the valley. You were there with me. Dale Ralph Davis captures it best when he says, For all the frightfulness of the place, the psalmist has no fear of disaster. This is not because there are floodlights in the valley, but because you are with me. You notice here how the psalmist is snubbing you? (laughs) The psalmist is no longer using the language of we or he No need to feel insulted. In verse four, he has turned away from you and he speaks to the shepherd. This more intimate note occurs not in the rest and refreshment, but in the darkness and distress. It is as though the trouble in the valley drives him closer to the shepherd and brings a deeper intimacy with them. Have we not often found this to be so? It is not that Christ is closer in the valley, but that we realize in the valley how close he has always been. Love that. It's not as if Christ is closer in the valley, but that we realize in the valley how close he has always been. In the valley, it's not enough to say he. We must now speak to him. We must speak to our own souls even as we speak to him. You, you are with me. See, to read the Old Testament is to encounter this promise of God again and again and again. I will be with you. I will be with you. You pick out any big name from the Old Testament and you see God talking to him. I will be with you. He was assured by God, I will be with you. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Jeremiah. The list goes on. What a list it is. Isaiah heard it in these words. Fear not, I am with you. He goes on. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will, up- I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10. Even though I take you through the valley of the shadow of death, I am with you. I will be with you. You can trust me. CJ has led our church in Louisville through a season of studying the book of Job, and we've learned uh, a key phrase from that series is that we need our best theology. In our darkest moments our best theology in our darkest moments in the vulnerability of the valley we're prone to think this darkness must mean that I've been forsaken surely this means I've been forsaken certainly here in this darkness I'm outside the reach of his grasp we have too often what one theologian calls the theology of glory which can only understand God's presence in the good moments we only ascribe goodness and wisdom to God when the pastures are green. But David knew a better theology, didn't he? We need to know a better theology that even when we're in the valley, God is with us. With us, Alec Matir put it like this, The God of the Bible can be trusted as much with our misfortunes as with our joys. He is God as much in the green pastures as in the darkest valley. All our ways are paths of righteousness. That is, paths that make sense to him. Paths along which his watchful love has directed our feet. God steadies us in the darkness. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed. And we learn to see and to say, yes, Lord, you are with me. And I know that today in our midst, there are those who are in the valley, learning through serious trial periods of darkness that you are not alone learning to declare you lord are with me to further prove his faithfulness to those in the valley david talks about how the lord wields his shepherding weapons on our behalf did you catch that david testifies your rod and your staff they comfort me his staff is his instrument to press us forward when we can't quite see our way. His rod is that instrument that he swings violently against the wild beasts that would seek to threaten us. He is committed to absolutely decimating anybody that would seek to take us out as we home towards heaven. He guides and protects the sheep that he has rescued. And so his rod and his staff, they comfort. But this translation of comfort, it doesn't fully capture what they do. As we see our shepherd swinging and bloodying the head of our enemy, those who would seek to harm us, we simultaneously experience his study, steady nudging forward. His rod and his staff, they give us courage. Not just comfort, but courage. Courage to believe. Courage to trust. Courage to keep on. Psalm 23 teaches us that the unwavering faithfulness of the Lord calls for our absolute trust in Him. Friends, though David knows the dangers of shepherding in ways that none of us can or ever will, we know Jesus, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, in ways that He never could, that side of glory. We know the one who later declared, I am the good shepherd. That's who leads us through our valleys. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Do you hear the personal Psalm 23-like language of our shepherd, Jesus? If you've turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, you have come to know the good shepherd, to believe in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And he is mighty to save. Listen again to the words of Dale Ralph Davis Jesus Christ, our shepherd, is no emaciated weakling. Our shepherd is a warrior, as shepherds had to be. No one can snap snatch his sheep out of his hand, John ten twenty eight. The muscles of Jesus' arm are flexed to defend his flock. He doesn't carry a club for nothing. He is obviously enough for whatever the valley throws at us. Jesus is enough for whatever the valley throws at you. You may not know what the next valley holds. I don't know what the next valley holds. But Christ does. And the darkness is not dark to him. The enemies of ours do not intimidate him. He is with you. He is with me. Carrying his club. Flex to defend. And so we can say with David, I will fear no evil. All right. From green pastures and along these righteous paths all the way into the dark valley, the unwavering faithfulness of the Lord calls out for our trust. That's what he's calling out for this morning, your trust in your current circumstances, your trust with the unknown. And now David transitions to a new metaphor, and we'll spend less time on this, but it's an important metaphor to spend a few minutes in where we find two more expressions or declarations of the Lord's faithfulness that we need to make. In verses 5 through 6, the shepherd delivers us now to a feast where he takes on the garments and the responsibilities of our host. The shepherd turns host in verse 5. David writes, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now, I don't know what in your mind qualifies for an enjoyable meal. But it's typically not hanging with your enemies, right? <laughs> and that's, that's the irony of what we come into here in this meal. The Lord has shepherded David through all these experiences and now delivers him to a meal where he becomes David's host. And it's in the presence of hostile enemies. But the Lord is not shaken by these enemies. His presence puts them in their place. They can only look on, unable to interrupt This feast. And as the Lord shepherds you to your place at the table and seats you there, it's not enough for Him to escort you and to pull back the chair for you. He does the unthinkable and He anoints your head with oil, a sign that this time is meant to be festive. To be in the Lord's presence is to experience joy. To be in the Lord's presence at the table is to experience a feast of His blessings, a celebration has begun. Um, I take that to mean there are serious food here, uh, serious food here in the Lord's presence. The wine that's poured out in abundance. We can almost hear, if you listen closely, you can almost hear the sounds of celebration as the Lord's people are gathered together with him in his presence. Oil on your head, wine to the brim. It's a lavish scene. And it's here that we learn to make a fourth declaration about the faithfulness of our Lord. My host is faithful to lavish his care. My host is faithful to lavish his care upon me. The elements of the table, they are here to satisfy you, to refresh you, to comfort you. But more than anything, this is what comforts. It's that we are with the host himself, the Lord. We're in his presence, and it's his presence that does our souls good. It's his authoritative presence that sends a clear message to the enemies of our soul who look on. He will not tolerate their pursuit, their accusations. This celebration is a vindication as well. If you've lived under the accusations of the enemy, his condemning voice, enjoy a seat at the Lord's table and experience his voice and his affirmation of acceptance. The Lord is looking to set the record straight with your enemy, the enemy of your soul. And like any holiday where you feasted or any movie that kind of captures a holiday scene between family and friends, you don't want this time to end. It's an unhurried one for us to enjoy and for our enemies to endure. But in God's providence, we will at some point rise from the table and enter again onto another path. This psalm is, in that sense, cyclical. We walk through this numerous times in life. But we've learned things from this journey. We've learned things from the valley. We've learned things from the table. We've learned that our unknowns are not unknown to him. Our unknowns are actually marked by God's display of faithfulness. And even at some point when we enter into some final dark valley called death, on the other side of it, all those who have been rescued by the good shepherd all those who have been served by our faithful host will be ushered into the new city of David to join with all the saints and recount the words of Revelation 19. Blessed are all those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And friends, this celebration, it never concludes. So the foretaste we have of feasts in this life and enjoying the Lord's presence, those are foretastes of that day when we will be with the Lord face to face and we will enjoy his presence. And so there's one final declaration we must make from Psalm 23. As we learn that our host is not only faithful to lavish his care upon us, but we learn that my faith, my host is faithful to lead me home. And what a sweet comfort this is. My host is faithful to lead me home. Look with me at verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And so this shepherd who leads us is the shepherd who follows us. The shepherd who leads us in faithfulness is the shepherd whose goodness and mercy follow us. We cannot get away from his provisions of care in life. No matter what he's leading us through, we can anticipate it's his faithful and righteous path that we walk down, and it's his goodness and mercy that follow along behind us. To look behind you is to see these two hounds of heaven, goodness and mercy, on our scent, chasing us down, making sure that we feel their presence, the presence of the Lord's goodness and the Lord's mercy, committed to overtake us, to outrun us, and to remind us that his favor is always upon us. The shepherd leads. His goodness and mercy follow. And with his relentless goodness and mercy, he will ultimately guide the redeemed home. The promise of his lips, I will be with you, will give way to the overwhelming reality that the dwelling place of God is with man. That's what we're going to hear when we see him face to face. The God who was with us by faith will one day be with us by sight. And we'll be able to set aside faith and to look on Him with our eyes. And what a day that will be. As Mr. Kidner said, the climax of this psalm reveals a love which homes towards no material goal but to the Lord Himself. You are with me. I am with you now and forever. And if you have turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then it is with Him that you now dwell in perfect union by faith, perfect union. And it is with him in his house, the house of the Lord, that you will dwell all the days of your life. Do you see how secure you are in the unwavering faithfulness of the Lord? So friends, let's be a people who trust in him and his personal care of our lives. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, precious Savior, and Spirit of God, we thank you that you are the triune God who rescues us from rebellion, that you might restore us in right relationship to you, and then shepherd us all our days until you bring us home to be with you. Father, what grace and what mercy. How is it that we have come to know such mercies, such undeserved grace. Father, we praise you that you have become for us in Christ our great shepherd. You have given us your Son to purchase our salvation and to lead us to yourself. Thank you that we can in this life give you trust, put our trust and faith in the right place in you. And thank you that whatever circumstances you and your kindness and your sovereign wisdom. Lead us through in the days to come. We know that you are with us and you will always be with us. You are our good shepherd and host. We love you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.